You're listening to UCW Radio and your face. What we got here is a failure to communicate. Oh, have I got your attention now? You know what I mean? Why did you a place like this? Money never sleeps, but I'll... You're crazy. Don't run when you lose. Don't whine my head. You know what it takes to sell real estate? It takes brass balls, balls, balls. I'm falling, and I can't get up! All right, welcome back to Money Never Sleeps, and uh, we're going to dive into venture capital. We have a great guest in Phil Sanderson of IDG Ventures USA. Uh, he's going to be coming on to speak about what's going on with venture capital. And just a little bit about Phil, he's a managing director at IDG. He is a seasoned pro in the rent venture capital arena, he in the technology arena, uh just a lot of uh useful information is I know is gonna be coming uh from him coming on the show. But before we do that, I wanna remind our listeners to check out the July August issue of the Money Never Sleeps magazine. We are featuring uh you know, such real estate, high-end real estate players as Chad Carroll from Bravo's Million Dollar Listings Miami, Luis Ortiz of Million Dollar Listings New York, article on the real wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, San Francisco power broker Barbara Klein, she's the best, uh, feature on Dr. Dre, and just so much more, and you will not be disappointed. Just go to ucwmagazine.com, check it out, and download it, and uh, read it. Uh, that's what it's there for. And we have a full show uh, lined up with some great guests t- today, so I'm really not going to chatter too much before I bring them on. Uh, but I will say that if you're a developer, investor, or an end buyer looking for off-market properties anywhere in the world, anywhere, feel free to reach out to me via ucwmagazine.com, and I'd be more than happy to work with you on that. And without further ado, let's bring on Phil Sanderson. All right, Phil, welcome to Money Never Sleeps. How are you? Doing great. Great. Uh, thank you for coming on, taking time out of your extremely hectic schedule to uh, to come on and kind of educate our listeners on what's going on in the venture capital markets. Absolutely. Well, there is a lot happening out here in Silicon Valley. And it's uh, it's been a busy uh, last few years, for sure. Well, I mean, you've been doing this for some time yourself. I have. I've I've been uh, in the venture capital area for about 18 years. Um, definitely seen the most activity in '99 and 2000. But uh, I would say that what we're going through now is similar to it, almost as active in terms of uh, funding activity and exits, for sure. Well, let me ask you something. You know, with with uh, tech and social media, you've had a lot of companies that have been funded, uh, from the the Twitters, the Facebooks, you know, all the other ones that a lot of people may not know, uh, from the Snapchats and the doodats and everything else. Um, and it continue the money continues to flow. You know, is this money just coming from the U.S. or this is this like an international thing at this point? Yeah, I would say it's definitely international. Um, it's funny. The venture capital industry is pretty small. Um, there's only there's just over a thousand venture capitalists in the Bay Area, and a, just under three thousand in the country. But venture backed companies contribute to twenty three percent of the GDP of the of the United States, which is incredible. Um, you know, most of the money that venture capitalists are investing are from U.S funds, you know, state uh, pension funds, college endowments, family offices, and, um, you know, it's one of the real drivers of our economy. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that I wanted to, the point that I wanted to get to, because I think a lot of people have a misconception that money's coming from Pluto, and they're trying to figure out where all this money's coming from. You know, but you, right. but you have you have a, a massive uh, amount of revenue uh, profit generation with all the uh, investments that that venture capital had they have made in startup companies. Yeah, I think um, you know there's about anywhere from five to ten billion dollars that goes to venture capitalists every year, and that and the venture capitalists' jobs, our jobs, are to find those companies 
who we think will be the next Google, uh, Pandora, which we backed um, when there were just five people, um, companies like that. So, uh, you know, typically we're looking for great teams first and foremost, and then markets that are growing, and then products or services that service those markets. And when we realize those business models change rapidly, we do a lot of early stage investing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the teams change, the, mo- the uh, business models change, but ultimately if you've got a great leadership, uh, great team, you know, they can figure it out. And that's, that's primarily who we're backing. And, and it comes down to the vision, the vision and execution, you know, cause I always say, you know, dreams without action, you know, what do you have? You, does it mean much? Right. Right. No, I've, I've, uh, I've done a lot of blogging and tweeting about entrepreneurship and startups and what it takes to be successful. And, um, you know, even, even during the recessionary times in the last 10 years in the Valley post the big bubble in 2000, 2001, you know, entrepreneurship did not die. It's really the underpinning of this country. And I think the heart of it is in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's so refreshing because when we're here, when you go out to a Starbucks or you go to lunch anywhere, people are just talking about their startup and the next big idea. And it's a really refreshing, um, environment it's a level of energy that you know this again as you i'm gonna i'm just gonna repeat what you said you know this country was built on entrepreneurship okay where you have small companies with big dreams and they they really they really put all their effort into it and they make them into to icons you know that's absolutely right yeah if you look at the facebooks the uh the twitters and companies and i mean google forget about it i remember when google when google was first brought to me it was a white page with a line and i said what is this because at the time i'm using ask jeeves and i was using other things i didn't know what it was when i found out what it was i said this is the future and at the time they said who needs another search engine yeah but you know and, 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 you know, the worst thing that you can ask is, you know, why, why do you need another product? Um, hasn't everything that can be created, hasn't that been created already? Well, no. You know, you've got new markets that are evolving. Social media is a new market. Mm-hmm. Um, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. When these things start to expand, new companies are spawned as part of those markets. And, you know, we're just seeing more and more markets evolve every year, every quarter, every day. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about it. And all these these bright young minds, you know, coming to the forefront and venture capitalists, you know, believing in them, believing in what they that they may have something that can contribute to the growth of whatever industry it is. I mean, th- those those are important things, I think, because without the money, how can you make it happen? That's exactly right. Okay, you know. So now, what 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 exactly are uh, is IDG focusing on uh, at this point right so we look for consumer internet and enterprise IT companies we're primarily investing in you know pretty early stage companies young teams Um, you know I happen to be the most active venture investor in the country in um, computer gaming Mm -hmm. so I'm making five to six new computer game investments per year Um, one of my investments is telltale games which publishes The Walking Dead. They're coming out with Game of Thrones this year, which they've licensed. Um, I've done a number of other game companies. We do a lot of music technology companies. I mentioned Pandora. Um, we are investing in a lot of software as a service companies, otherwise known as SaaS, mm-hmm. and enterprise IT companies. Um, so it's a pretty broad range. It's primarily technology. And, um, you know, that's where we've always spent our time and where we've been successful and, you know, where we'll continue. Well, let me ask you this now. I mean, the the, the names that you just mentioned, uh, with, without a doubt, I mean, I love The Walking Dead, so I, I love the I love the game. And you know, these are these are still growth situations because you, you know, with entertainment, with gaming, you know, it never dies out. People just want more. Absolutely, uh, you know, especially with the advent of the smart mobile phone. And the tablet, the market has expanded radically. In fact, there's about 1.2 billion people who play games on a monthly basis. And that's massive. I mean, there's over a billion people that have played Angry Birds. You're starting to talk about the share of the world, you mm-hmm. know, at that level. Um, but, you know, 
gaming uh, gaming spans from the casual gamer, somebody who's got a little bit of extra time during the day, wants to play for five minutes, it's really easy, or um, you know, somebody who wants to play a hardcore game like League of Legends or Dota 2, and you know, people are playing upwards of 100 hours a week. It's just hard to fathom, yeah. but it happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in virtual goods, you know, we've we've got companies where some of their players pay ten to twenty thousand dollars a month for virtual goods. Ten to twenty thousand dollars a month. Yes, <laughs> that, that's insane. <laughs> it's completely insane. But when you're talking about a global market and you've got tens of millions of users, there's always one or two that will just go. You know, off the reservation. Yeah, I think that they're uh, competitive, to say the least. <laughs> Absolutely, everybody is. That's why games are, you know, successful. Yeah, well, that's what it is. You know, people, as you said, people can take five minutes out of their day and you know, kind of escape their own reality and go into another reality. And, that's right. And I guess that's why virtual reality. You know, that that's something that's been around for a while. But, you know, with the advent of Oculus and, and these other companies and, I mean, with Google and Facebook and all these companies actually investing in this, um, like Elon Musk said, you know, I'm, and he, you know, I'm a little worried about what's going to happen down the road. Yeah. Yeah, who knows where uh, technology will lead us, mm -hmm. you know, but we just know it'll be, there's innovation, there's entrepreneurs, and there's opportunity. And that's, you know. That's what we do, and that's what we look for. Yeah, you know, Phil, you know, I know that, I mean, there are a lot of companies out there that are, they look to venture capital because they, they don't know what to do. And they're, you know, they're, if they don't know someone and they have a company, let's say, and they're looking for funding, how would they go about, you know, approaching a venture capitalist to get funding? What, what, steps should they take in order to uh, kind of, I guess, woo the venture capitalists into believing their vision? Yeah, I, I think, uh, like anything, um, working connections that you have is effective. And I would try to find companies that are venture-backed in your given category and look to ask for connections to their venture capitalists. Um, you can also do the research, you know, look at the venture capitalist blogs, Twitter, you know, Twitter website. Understand the companies they've invested in, and possibly reach out and say, you know, we've got a, we've got a company that could be very synergistic to one of your portfolio companies. And by the way, we're also raising money. And you know, part of the job of a venture capitalist is not just to look for those uh, new investments, but it's to help their portfolio companies and to be very active in creating relationships and, and adding their expertise and advice. So, you know, that's a great way to, um, you know, to find. Um, to find the right VCs to work with. Yeah, because I know that that is one of the, if not the top question that I that I get from a lot of uh, new businesses, new ventures. Uh, they have the idea, they have the vision, they have everything, they have the team, they have the drive, but they don't know how to go about getting the money. And it's true, and you know, there's also a stage that can be helpful before venture capital, which is angel financing. So getting friends and family investments, going for um, you know, the angel community, angel list, is something that's really evolved very quickly. Um, and there are a number of angel groups, and that's probably one of the better ways to get started. There are a number of venture funds like us who do seed investing, um, but it's not as common. Mm -hmm. So I think tapping into the seed and angel market is probably the right first step. So that's, that's the good first, that's the best first step for them to take in order for them to get to the point that they can come to us, uh, to a company like IDG for additional funding. I think that's right, yeah. Okay, well, we do about um, 7 to 10 seed investments a year of 100 to $300,000 each, and we also do about 4 to 5 Series A or Series B investments in the 2 to $5 million initial range as well. And, and you see an abundance of activity nowadays. You know, we look at, we do, we look at about 1,000 what we call qualified leads per year, Mm -hmm. um, and that adds up to those, you know, 15 investments that we choose out of those thousand. It's, it's, there are a lot of great opportunities because like I said, you know, entrepreneurship has not slowed down, um, you know, at least since, since I got into the business, you know, 18 years ago. All right. But you, you were around when, uh, when AOL, the, the original social network, uh, but that, yeah. that, that came right after, uh, the bulletin boards <laughs> and yeah, CompuServe, Prodigy, all those guys. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. In the beginning. Yeah, but you know, as you said, you know, there's always an evolution. You know, even social media as we know it now, you know, people look at it as if as if it's a new idea. It's not a new idea. It's something that's been around. It's just that it's been enhanced, and that is the, and you know. right. And the market has moved with it. So there's broadband. There's smartphones. Um, so now we've got you know a global. I, I remember we talked about. Um, Internet traffic spiked at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., which is when people would basically surf at work. But today, you've got a very powerful machine in your hand, a smartphone, and you don't want your work monitoring what you're doing in social networks, mm-hmm. how you're looking for a job, how you're doing e-commerce. So now mobile permeates everything. Um, and everybody, you know, a lot of people have broadband. If you look at Google's new initiative, um, you know, with their, their drones and so forth, they're providing... Um, internet access to 98% of the world's population for about $3 billion. Wow. That, I mean, you know, that opens up a lot of opportunity yeah. <laughs> and a lot of, uh, a lot of customers. Yeah, yeah, because if you connect the world and they're going on your system, on your, on your, your platform, yeah, you're advertising to them whether they like it or not. It's true. And, it's true. And that's, um, yeah. no, I, I really, you know, you mentioned AOL. I think AOL and Yahoo have really fallen into the trap of, um, you know, becoming large bureaucratic companies mm-hmm. um, and, and good people leaving and, and sort of dying out over time. I have not seen that yet with Google, Facebook, and Apple. Um, and those companies continue to innovate and really drive the internet economy, which is very exciting. And I think there'll be others like that which evolve over the next you know, five years, we'll see another, you know, Google that's created another Facebook, and uh, that's what we're trying to find. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely correct. Like with Facebook and Google, you still have the original founders in the company. And that, I think, to me, I think that's a key thing because their vision stays true. With Apple, you know, of course, Steve Jobs is not with us anymore, but Tim Cook, he actually he actually turned things around in, in an interesting way. Because now he's looking to make deals where Apple wasn't looking to do before. That's that's right. I think he has carried the torch, and um, you know we'll see how long he can do that. It's very hard to replace a visionary like Steve Jobs. Um, almost impossible. Mm-hmm. But um, for now, you know Apple remains, you know, the largest company for a reason, and uh, and one of the most innovative for a reason, for oh, sure. There's no doubt about it, Phil. You know your insight. You know, definitely, I know all listeners are going to get a benefit from it because, you know, just your, your knowledge and your experience, that alone is worth the price of admission. So uh, I, I think our listeners should, you know, give you a big thanks, and I'm thanking you. Uh, why don't you let, you know, us, let us know, let our listeners know how to find out more about you, how to find out more about I, IDG, and, you know, keep up to date, you know, with you on social media and uh, everywhere else. Absolutely. Um so I can be reached, um, you know, through Twitter. It's at San Francisco VC. And um, I do a lot of blogging as well, um, which, you know, your listeners may enjoy. It's sfvc.com. And I primarily blog about, you know, technology, venture, gaming. But also I'm, a, I'm an ultramarathoner. I run 100-mile races. So I, I blog about that. And I'm also hundred mile hundred 100-mile races? I do, yes. <laughs> That, that's love, beyond uh, Iron Man. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, they, they they take about twice as long as Iron Man. So I love love running, and when I run, I listen to rap and hip hop. I also blog uh, quite a bit about it, so you can find that at sfbc.com. All um, right. And then our uh, our company website is idgvusa.com, okay. which stands for idgventuresusa.com. So, yeah, you can reach me. I'd love to hear from your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always uh, engaged in in uh, in talking about these topics, and I really appreciate uh, being on the show. No, well, thank you for coming on, Phil. And, and our listeners, definitely, you know, you know, uh, reach out to Phil Sanderson because his insight on, on the venture capital industry, on, on the tech industry itself, is pretty intense, and you're going to get a big ben- benefit. Phil, thank you again. And we're gonna, you know, if you don't mind, I want to bring you on again in the future yeah. so that we can get further updates because I think that this topic is beyond interesting. I love it. 
but I, I do appreciate Definitely, Lou. it. Great, great being on. Look forward to being on again. Perfect. Thank you. And listeners, you know, stick with us because uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with more on Money Never Sleeps. Israeli police clashed with stone-throwing Palestinians in Jerusalem Wednesday, a day after the funeral of three Israeli teenagers. The fighting started after witnesses say an Arab teen was forced into a car in East Jerusalem. Immediately roadblocks were set up and we searched across the capital in order to find the uh, missing teenager. About an hour and a half afterwards, a body was found in the Jerusalem forest and obviously we're looking in to see if there is a connection between the body that was found and the missing reports of uh, that teenager. Israeli authorities are trying to determine if the motive was criminal or political. As news of the teen's disappearance spread, hundreds of Palestinians torched rail stations and threw stones at Israeli police. Police responded with tear gas and stun grenades. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the death a reprehensible murder. Prime Minister Netanyahu has instructed the police to expeditiously and decisively investigate this murder. He's also called upon everyone not to take the law into their own hands. The settlers kidnapped him, burned him and killed him. I ask the Israeli government firstly to punish who did this if they want peace between the Palestinian and Israeli people and also to stop the settlers' aggression. Rocket fire from the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip into Israel has intensified with Israel striking back by air. All right, welcome back to Money Never Sleeps. And uh, hey, you know, we have another great guest that's going to be coming on. Uh, he is an authority in off-market real estate on an international scale. So please join me in welcoming Simon Greenberg from London Central Properties to the show. All right, Simon, welcome to Money Never Sleeps. How are you? I'm very well, Louis. Thank you very much, and it's good to be here. Well, Simon, it's a definite pleasure to have you on, because uh, your insight on the international real estate market, the high-end real estate markets, is going to come in handy here. Now, I know there are a lot of dynamics going on you know, uh, in the U.K. and Europe, and maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you can give us an idea of what's going on over there. Right. Well, as far as obviously we're located in the center of London, and as far as we are, we deal mainly in sort of the higher end of the market, particularly what we call off market. And this is apartments, residences, uh, investments, and uh, sometimes hotels. Now, the thing is at the moment, uh, London is very buoyant, and it has been for some time. And the reason being that it's a safe haven. Because obviously what's happening around the world, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's in uh, Thailand, whether it's in North Africa or wherever, we're finding that a lot of people are moving their monies over to London and investing in real estate. So even, even certain countries in Europe, uh, more the South uh, European, such as Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, we're finding a lot of wealthy buyers, uh, they feel safe when their money is in real estate in London. In other words, they're putting their money in bricks and mortar. It's like having a very, very safe bank account. You know something, Simon? I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, I have a question for you. Okay, do you think that these wealthy individuals, these, um, you know, from, from all over, from Europe and, and uh, whatnot, do you think that they are investing in real estate in the U.K.? And, you know, because I know it's happening in New York, it's happening in California and Florida. Do you think that they are buying real estate in the U.K. more as a safety, safety deposit box uh, than anything else? Right. It's a combination, actually, because particularly in what we call Zone 1, which is central postcodes, you, they're, they're buying, let's say, apartments or residences or um, uh, small investments. And basically, the, it's, it's a lock-up situation whereby they might use it for a, two or three months of the year, particularly in the sort of summer seasons, or they just might decide not to use it. They might use it as a rental investment. They're using it basically for A, for capital appreciation, for sure, and also they're looking at the sterling aspect because 
as you are aware, sterling is a strong currency at the moment. And if you look back over the last 10 or 20 years, it's always been a relatively strong currency against the other major currencies around the world. So it's really two or threefold. And that that's pretty interesting because I believe that when money starts flowing into uh, the high-end luxury, it doesn't matter where it's coming from, uh, but when, once that money starts flowing over there, it kind of gives you a gauge to where, you know, where the money flow is going in general. And that's pretty important in what you're doing, Simon. Exactly, exactly. And what do you see these wealthy individuals being attracted to? What type of properties are they actually uh, looking at? Right. It, it varies tremendously, obviously, depending on their budgets. But um, there are certain areas, I would say in London, there are certain areas which attract certain overseas investors. For instance, we've got an area which is just north of Hyde Park, which is an area, um, it's just called, it's called the Edgware Road, and around there we find a lot of high net worth Middle Easterns. They like that particular area. They have a lot of restaurants and shops, and it's um, it's really they call it like a little Beirut, and basically they feel very much at home there. There again, if you go south of the park into areas like Belgravia, you have a very international mix, including a lot of sort of European. You have um, from Hong Kong and the Far East, and then you have the areas of Mayfair and Malabone, which again are very international, popular with Americans, uh, popular again with Middle East. A uh, number of uh, the principal embassies are located there. So it really, as I say, certain areas uh, cert, uh, tend to attract um, countries. So they've, they're, if you like, they've built up certain communities within. So London, I think now, is probably the most diverse city in the world in terms of cultures. And obviously New York uh, comes very close. But I think number one is now London because, of, as I say, there are, it's so multicultural. And uh, as I said, we have a cross-section of investors who are looking for, as I say, from single unit up to extremely sort of of substantial development. And Simon, just so our listeners know, we're not talking about 200,000 pound residents or anything like that. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, we had this discussion many times. Unfortunately, the, uh, well, fortunately or unfortunately, it depends which way you look at it, the majority of properties now, I would say 75, 80% are being sold outside, overseas, as opposed to the UK market within London. And it's very, very hard, I mean, to find, let's say, a studio unit, you would be looking for something relative, you're looking in the region of about 500,000 sterling, which is about $750,000. And yeah. then you go ad infinitum. I mean, it's very hard to say an approximate figure because you can get one bedroom apartments depending on which part of London you're in. For around maybe five to seven hundred and fifty thousand, and then if you go into the prime prime location, you can pay uh, around the up to three for a one bedroom unit around the three three million mark. So this is in sterling, I'm quoting. And just for the purpose of clarity, Simon, when, you know, for our listeners, uh, when you were mentioning the studios, one bedrooms, and things of that nature, that was only a point of reference to kind of show what's happening to the, the market, uh, you know, rates over there for those, uh, for those uh, type of properties. But typically, you know, you deal with high end and you're dealing with properties that are 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 million dollars because at, at the end of the day, that is what constitutes high end. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got on our inventory, which is direct to us at the moment, one, one individual residence, which would be 250 million, uh, 250 million US dollars just for one residential house. Yep, and those things do exist out there, people. As I say, there aren't that many, but yeah, they do exist, certainly. Very much so. And if anybody's interested, we're more than willing to sort of discuss it with them. Yeah, definitely. And just for full disclosure, you know, for our listeners, Simon, we have to have full disclosure. Uh, yeah, Simon, myself, and uh, Peter, we do work together. And uh, just need to disclose that. 
And but as far as you know, knowledge of the UK and European markets, you know, no doubt, no doubt about it. You know, uh, Simon and London Central, uh, they are the uh, the the top tier as far as information goes and as far as dealing with the high end luxury uh, in those markets. That that is much much appreciated. Actually, just um, I, I just wanted to to mention that uh, basically we've been talking about London, but yes, I mean we cover in particular all around the globe. We've got inventory in 21 countries, but in particular we do Paris, we do the Côte d'Azur, uh, we'll do in Portugal, Spain, Italy, um, but Switzerland, Germany. But we're looking at the high end there. We're not looking at the everyday market. As I say, something, the penthouses, the castles, the palazzios, and the uh, sort of four and five star hotels. And you know something? I, I think that's key. When you start seeing the money flowing and, and there's a rapid movement in luxury uh, real estate, I don't know. I, I think that that's a good indication of what's going on in that particular market. It does. It certainly does. And although, as I say, I mean, if you look at certain countries, what we call that, like the Mediterranean effect, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, where the markets are very sluggish because people don't have confidence either in the government or in the actual, in the euro or whatever, there is still a demand for certain areas like today, for instance, uh, we've been given a beautiful five-star hotel in Venice, Venezia, where there is always a year-round tourism. And this is a boutique hotel, which is on at 50 million euros. Uh, so there is a demand for these type of sort of properties. But in general, I would say um, Europe is um, it's not quite London. Paris, possibly, but not, not, not as buoyant as London. Well, Simon, let me ask you something. You know, have you seen uh, a change over there? Because I know in the States, a lot of... Uh, you know, Russian money was flowing in to New York, Florida, and other parts. And I was wondering if you have seen that change, you know, from the past, the recent past, to the present. Has there been a big change over there in the UK? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, predominantly um, before it was the, well, besides, it was a lot from the Middle East, considerable amount from the Middle East and from the States, from South America from certain African countries. Now we're finding um, from the from Russia, also from other areas like Ukraine, etc. But I would say predominantly Russians, and they have well established, uh, not only on the residential, but also on the commercial, the hotels. And yeah, they are becoming big players in terms of London, very, very much so. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, they, they, um, they, I would say that, uh, they would probably rank just below our, our, the, the Middle East investors in terms of what they put, their funds that they're putting into London. That's definitely interesting. Now, I have a question for you, another question actually. Uh, what about the, uh, the Chinese money, the wealth from China? Have you been seeing an influx of, uh, of Chinese investors coming to the UK? Right. Now, that's interesting because we've got a big project that we're dealing with now with Chinese investors because recently our mayor, uh, Boris Johnson, was in China. Uh, there is a lot of interest from the Chinese. Uh, they're already buying here considerably and uh, they're looking to invest their funds in not only in London, in their second city is Manchester, but uh, they, they like London. A lot of their children are being educated, either at private schools or universities. So they're looking to buy residences uh, for their children. And also they're looking at some substantial projects. So, yeah, Russia and China, definitely big players in London. Let me ask you this, Simon, because if anyone has their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the market in the UK and Europe, it's you and Peter. Um, but I have to ask you this. We're t we've been speaking about individual investors. Now, what about private equity? Have you, se have you seen private equity money, you know, coming onto the scene uh, in uh, the UK and Europe? 
Yeah, also to a certain degree, I would say that that's a, that's also an an important uh, factor. Uh, the thing is, I think that um, the the thing is with London basically is at the moment we're finding that the um, the, uh, supp- the the demand is greater than the supply. Let's say of the preferred of the preferred type of property. So yes, um, but at the end of the day, I would say the corporates are. Other principal buyers, if you like. Well, you know that that's that's definitely not a bad problem to have. You know, when the uh, demand is much higher than the supply. Yeah, I mean there are. I, I I mean I don't always. I wouldn't always believe what you read in the press. Nothing is. I mean, not everything is selling overnight. Uh, but the majority of stock is. And interesting, what we talked just now about, particularly with the Chinese, they tend to like uh, new builds. They'll buy off plan. So in other words, where there's a project being put up in areas, even secondary areas, uh, they're willing to buy, which they used to in China, off plan. And um, as I say, they, they will buy multiple units and uh, or even entire buildings. So, yeah. And, you know, the one thing with with these high-end buyers, the Chinese, the Russians that are coming in, the one thing that they all adhere to is discretion. And so, unless they're looking for publicity, but other than that, they're, they adhere to discretion. Yes, very, very much so. Absolutely. It's trust and discretion, confidentiality. It takes time, but at the end of the day, that's what we're here for, and we're, we, we will provide the service. Definitely, definitely. And Simon, let me say this. You and your team are doing some fantastic things. And I have to say for our listeners out there, if you are, if you're in the market to purchase a high end property anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, it's much better to deal with it on an off market basis as opposed to getting into a bidding war, uh, with a, uh, with something that's marketed all over the place. Uh, that's one thing you want to kind of try to avoid, all right? And for anyone out there that may have high-end property that they are looking to uh, liquidate, you know, definitely, you know, try, it's better to work with London Central and, and try to get things done on an off-market basis because I believe that working on an off-market basis, you know, for these high-end situations uh, is a better uh, better route to take. Well, I, I, I concur with that, and I would say that about three quarters of our sales are based on off-market opportunities, and that's especially true when we're talking about investments, hotels, or larger developments. Yeah, and as I say, if anybody is to come direct to you or to us, then they will get the best service possible. Without a doubt, that goes without saying. Class A service all the way. And that's how we do things. Uh, for anyone out there that's listening to the show and you're looking for a high-end residential home uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world, it can be the U.K., it can be the United States, it can be in Australia, wherever you're looking to be, London Central can help you. This is what they do. They've been doing it for a long time. And again, you know, these properties are off market. We're going to have some information on Money Never Sleeps. You will not see any listings, again, because, you know, these are off market situations. If they were listed, then, you know, what would you need uh, someone that has these in their pocket for? Uh, so basically, if you want any further information, uh, you'll see it there. And I would just put in there, as I say, um, they can also look at the, uh, the LinkedIn profile, which has the, um, access to the website. So the website is a portal whereby they'll see, let's say, a certain selection of the, uh, worldwide properties. But as you've just said, as far as the off market is concerned, they do not appear on the website, so they would come to yourself or ourselves and deal directly on that. Simon, you know, look, whether they come to you, come to me, it doesn't matter. It's one and the same. We're all part of the same unit. Uh, and again, you know, I think it was important that we spoke about uh, everything in regards to off-market real estate because I think you have, um, I think there's a misconception about off-market real estate that, you know, a deal closes in a day. And it doesn't take a day. It takes, it can take three months, six months, nine months. I've seen situations that take, will take a year 
uh, to get done. You know, but I, you know, I want to thank you for going over that. And I really uh, think that it was important that we touched on all these points, Simon. We've, we've had one. I mean, in particular, I'm working on one now. It's nine months. It probably won't close till December. So we're looking over a year, in fact. Right, exactly, and it just takes time, you know, and I'm going to sound a little redundant here, but as I said earlier, you know, dealing with um, with uh, high-end luxury and even commercial real estate on an off-market basis is the best way to go because you can get to the bottom line, you can get to the, uh, to the core of the situation and, and get more deals done, and that's the best way to do business, I think. Absolutely, and our motto is basically uh, quality, not quantity. So um, that, that's, where, that's where we hold. And as you say, the off-market opportunities are the ones which uh, the serious investors, let's say, particularly at the high end, that's what they're looking for. And hopefully that's what we can supply. Well, I don't, th- I don't think it's a hope situation, Simon. That is what London Central does supply. And I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, we're going to have you on again because, uh, in the future, because I think your insight is going to be invaluable to, uh, to our listeners. All right. My pleasure. And I look forward to it, Louis. Thank you. Thank you very much. And behalf of Peter as well. Well, thank you, Simon, and thank you, Peter. And I want our listeners to stick with us because in a short while, we're going to be bringing you one of the hardest working people in the hotel industry, hands down. And his insight is going to be uh, pretty impressive, I'm sure of it. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Former French President Nicolas Sarkozy was questioned by police for several hours after he was charged in a corruption probe. He's accused of tapping political allies to gain intelligence on a number of investigations linked to campaign finance. The situation is serious. The facts are serious. As you said, the indictment concerns magistrates, high-level magistrates, a lawyer, a former president of the republic. Sarkozy answered questions from judicial officials along with his personal lawyer and magistrate. The former conservative party leader has vigorously denied wrongdoing. At the heart of the investigations are allegations that Sarkozy took 50 million euros in illegal campaign funds from Libya's late dictator Muammar Gaddafi. He has not been convicted. As long as you don't have a proof or a conviction, Nicolas Sarkozy is still in the game and can say, you know, it's a plot, it's a political conspiration to make it impossible for me to become the president of the French Republic again. The investigation is being handled by a new financial crime force, which is independent of the socialist government that defeated Sarkozy in the 2012 election. All right, welcome back. I'm excited about bringing on our next guest. He is, without any doubt, an authority in the hotel industry and you know been doing it over two decades all over the world he's a global authority so without further ado please welcome thomas klein of fairmont hotels to the show all right tom uh welcome to money never sleeps how are you i'm very good thanks lou nice to catch up yeah, definitely, definitely. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show, because you know, I know uh, you're, you're a madman when it comes to work. Yeah, time is important, and you know this business never stops. It's 24-7, but it's always good to catch up and, uh, and talk about the industry. All right, excellent. You know, and to, to, to talk about the industry, you know, let's talk about the hospitality industry. Um, you know, the hotel business has changed over the years. And with your background, you've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, and not, not, not dating you, but you've been doing this a long time, meaning you have your fingers on the pulse of what's happening, not only in San Francisco, but on a global basis. So maybe you can give us some input. Yeah, I can, Lou. I'm not sure I like the way you said long time, but it has been <laughs> quite some years, but that's good. It has been a long time. And yeah, you know, quite frankly, it's, uh, it, I've been blessed to have worked in the international arena between Africa, Australia, um, Europe, and so forth and so on the last 15 years here in the U.S. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, certainly have a good handle on the industry, you know, and the industry has changed 
quite a bit, obviously, from what it used to be back in the old days of Cesar Ritz and what have you. Because today, a lot of our a lot of our hotels are owned by third parties, and we are uh, we've we've undertaken the fiduciary responsibility to manage that business for and on behalf of those owners. Um, so not only do we have the uh, the pressure to uh, take care of our customers, which are most important, but also provide the uh, uh, returns for owners on their assets that we're uh, empowered to manage. So, you know, you, it's particularly from a senior management executive level, or I look after multiple hotels here on the West Coast, it's all about taking care of all of your stakeholders. And, and, you know, from my standpoint, I just hope we never get into the commodity trading business and we retain what true hospitality is all about. Well, and that is understanding what the customer wants to meet and exceed his or her expectations when they arrive at your particular property, regardless of whether it's a five-star luxury as, uh, as, as Fairmont and Raffles and Swiss Hotel as, as we go to market with. But, you know, all, all brands, uh, we all have the same responsibilities to, to the constituents that uh, come and stay with us. Um, and the customers, uh, you know, demands are changing quite a bit. You know, today it's with technology. It's all about not more than just providing shelter. It's about technology. It's about that food and beverage experience. It's about efficiency. You know, the core components of cleanliness and all those things, you know, they're almost a given. It's the price value proposition uh, that the customer wants today. And, and, and the world has gotten smaller. And if you're looking at the East Coast, even some of the central areas or the West Coast, the international travel and market is picking up dramatically as well. So one has to have a bit of a paradigm shift in how do we deal with that international customer, whether it's the Asian, the Middle East, European, or what have you. So it's an exciting time to be in the business. And uh, tourism, you know, if I look at the national basis, is growing. We're certainly blessed on the West Coast. We're leaders in the market right now, and uh, as it relates to both growth in uh, in tourism and corporate travel, as well as it relates to uh, increasing of uh, of room rates and overall business in the market. So we're blessed on many different levels, and it's it's good to see that economy picking up and growing. and And the discerning traveler is out there, and they're you know they're spending on the, on the food, the fine wines, on the real estate side of things. So. Let's let's keep the momentum going, as I say. Uh, well, I think the uh, the term five star from let's say ten years ago is a lot different to you know today. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, in many in many respects, as it's evolved. You know, it used to be the old days, and I spent years with another great company, Ritz Carlton, and 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 Hyatt, and and other international brands. And it was, you know, about the amenities in the room. You know, you barely could find the sink because everybody was putting more amenities in the rooms. And uh, you know, we called that five star. And today, it's going back. Really, is is as I was saying earlier. It's it's about that service. It's about the guest recognition. It's about you know, taking care of that guest and, and how do we define service and what is the premium that guest is prepared to pay um, to stay and become loyal with your brand. And uh, in many respects, we've been blessed with a, with a very strong following with Fairmont. Unfortunately, we don't have the critical mass um, with the brand at the moment, although that is changing significantly between the uh, three brands that we have, Fairmont, Raffles, and Swiss Hotel, where we're growing significantly both on the domestic and on the international arena. Yeah, and that's that's the thing with Fairmount. I mean, you guys are global. You have a global presence. And getting stronger, you know. It, it's, it's important that for our customer, as the customer becomes more loyal to the brand, when they get into a destination that they frequent and there's not one of our brands, they get disappointed. And we need to we need to make sure we get into the psyche of that customer and control his or her travel experiences and make sure that we have destination hotels wherever they might travel. And, and that, that's a good problem to have, I guess. It's a great problem to have, you know, and uh, and we're a solid company with with committed shareholders, and uh, you know the growth for us is is dynamic at the moment and for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and and the hotel industry has changed, as you mentioned, you know, over the past ten twenty years, where you had you know individual you know either families owning them or individual uh, individuals owning hotels. Right now, it's private equities, public companies, and and so on and so forth. Now, let me ask you this, because I I believe that international travel, tourism, it kind of it, it kind of feeds into 
where money's flowing and how uh, how the economy, you know, as much as the news says one thing, how the economy could actually actually is. So, do you see uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tourism? Do or do you see tourism picking up uh, as it relates to your brands? Yeah, no question. And if I'm looking at the U.S. and spe- you know, specifically, I mean that Asian market, and you know, let's drill it down a little bit. The Chinese market, um, you know, with the relaxation and continued relaxation of visas, I mean that's just a huge market, um, not only for the West Coast, naturally we're the gateway to the U.S., but uh, for the U.S. as a whole. If you look at the Latin American market, if you look at the Brazilian market, there's significant affluence, and and the airlines are. Uh, adding lift out of most of these destinations into North America. Um, so with that, you know, we're all benefiting from uh, from that increased tourism growth. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not huge, but it certainly is steady and measurable. Um, you're working off a low base, so you know, from a percentage standpoint, that's a high percentage growth. Um, but these are markets that um, are going to continue to grow for us, um, not only as a brand, but for us as an industry, and and we need to make sure we're able to uh, take care of that customer as well. Uh, uh- so it is there, and I see it continuing to grow. And it's interesting, and a lot of people may not realize this, but in the hotel industry, it's more of a destination. So when you have a hotel, it draws people. You you draw people in, you're creating more business in the area. Absolutely. Look, I sit on the board with San Francisco Travel, for example, here and uh, chair one of their committees, and, and we very much promote not only the hotel, but you're bringing tourism dollars to the city. And we've got good representation in Asia, Asia Pacific with our global sales force and team. They're driving business to the destination, to your point, Lou. It's, um, it, it's driving business not only to the hotel, but to the, you know, to the city and the destination where each of our hotels are. Um, so there are multiple winners when you when you get out and you're driving that business in, and that's why we join forces a lot with the tourism bodies uh, that uh, that work with you in marketing a specific destination. And I think that's important because I always look at you know someone that was brilliant, uh, Walt Disney. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. Everything is a one-stop shop, and once you're that's there, I mean, you, you have the hotel, you have this, you're shopping, and that's why the company's so profitable. I think. <laughs> No, exactly. You know, I was just in Beijing and Shanghai a little over less, less than a year ago, and 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 the interest in the Americas as a whole was just phenomenal. Um, and and as, you know, I, I've mentioned China a couple times. That's just a huge market. Um, but there are there are plenty of other markets out there on in the international landscape that are going to f- feed and pick into uh, the North American tourism sector. And where do you think the growth is happening as as far as tourism right now? From a geographical standpoint, there's no question Latin America will continue to be strong, you know, with the World Cup and everything that got exposure out of, you know, Brazil and uh, some of the Latin American travelers, they're certainly coming north. You know, we see Europe continues to be strong for us, specifically UK, Germany, Australia. I'm referring now to the West Coast is still a strong market just by virtue of uh, uh, the flight uh, traffic that you get in out of Australia. Um, you know, so there's, there's those those would be the key top markets that feed into the Americas. You know, it's 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 good. You're seeing the Russian business pick up, although that's slower pace at the moment. Um, but you know, it's 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 a good balance of the international um, marketplace. Yeah, and, and it's really really interesting. You know, I I, I know that um, that you don't uh, deal on this end, but do you think that the the smaller uh, hospitality, uh, the, the motels, the hotels? Do you think that they're finding a boost with, uh, you know, because of, of course when people travel, let's say they go yep. they go to one of your hotels, you know, you may be fully booked. You know, does that trickle over to what's going on around there? Yeah, it does. Look, there is, it's a big market. When you've got, and there's some, there's some terrific operators out there at the limited service, um, uh, marketplace. And that market is just large. It's, it's all a bit, it's all price value proposition. You know, whether you're traveling with families or, or what have you. And, and, you know, they, they are in, they also cover the geographical locations where we may not have that presence by virtue of the brand and the larger assets. And certainly the boutique market continues to do well. If you look in some of your major gateway cities. You've got the 
the boutique brands that are also coming up and it's smaller it's intimate it's that personal touch you know that uh, that they also offer which the consumer out there is, is certainly looking for and that market is there yeah, and I also think that when people travel and they uh, take their family, you know, they want to be in a, in a hotel that has the amenities. They want to be at a place that is, you know, kind of gives them a little more, and that's what the Fairmount does. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's all yeah, absolutely right. You know, and, the, and we we typically will run, particularly during the holidays, these family promotions, these family packages, because because it's the food and beverage experience. Whether you're going to our resorts and it's the pools, it's it is the amenities, it's the location, what's accessible around your hotel, what's safe and clean, and that total environment for the for the family traveler. You know, as as well as the couples that are going on honeymoons or just just traveling around the country. I think that it's it's important, you know, that uh, our listeners kind of get a good, you know get this great idea of where things are picking up and what's actually happening. Because the way I look at it, if tourism is picking up in a certain country, okay, that's where the money's flowing. That's where some of the money's flowing, and it kind of gives right. you an indication of what's happening, right? Which, which is important. Yep. yep, absolutely important. You know, and those those are economic indicators. Yeah. Um, and that's what's driving the tourism business. You know, San Francisco is, is I think, you know, you've got Silicon Valley. You've the tech capital of the world out here. There's a lot happening in this marketplace, specifically on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, that market is going to continue to grow. You know, we are, we are much smarter today when we look at the fundamentals of uh, running our businesses and, and spending money. I think there's, there's less risk out there. Um, there's a significant amount of capital on the side. Guidelines relative to personal and corporate income, and uh, and people are spending the money, but they're being wiser about how they're spending and allocating those dollars. And and that's then that's important as well because you know that means that there's longevity involved there. Exactly. You know the question everybody's a fear. You know when's the next bubble? When's the next burst? How are we prepared for it? I think on the latter part, we certainly are from a corporate standpoint much better prepared for it today. We're just, as I said earlier, just not taking that risk. And the same for the individual and the consumer travel. They're, they're smarter. They're, it's all about value for dollar. And what am I getting for my dollar? And and wherever I might spend it. And and again, those are key things. You know, because when yeah. you have the smarter consumer. Uh, and they're allocating their funds according to what's of value to them, you know, that means that you have to actually bring out a little more. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you mentioned bubble, okay? Right. You know, is that bubble going to burst? Is there a bubble as big as they say it is? You know, who knows? Who knows? I, I don't know. Well, I guess I we'll find answer, out. I probably wouldn't be sitting here chatting with you at the moment. I'd be <laughs> somewhere on the beach and... You know, relax, and I, you just don't know. I right. mean, my view is that there will be a correction. I, I don't foresee a bubble. I think, as I said, you know, we're, 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 we, we've learned. We learned the hard way, and we're just really recovering out of that. Right, excellent. Tom, you know, your input is definitely invaluable. I appreciate your time today. Uh, do you want to, you know, give uh, our listeners the uh, the website? So, you know, and I do urge our listeners when you're traveling, you know, to patronize uh, Fairmount because it's a great, great organization and you definitely get the value for your money. Thanks, Lou. With pleasure. It's www.fairmont.com. Beautiful. simple, and we look forward to welcoming you. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. And uh, our listeners, just, just hang in there. We're going to be right back on Money Never Sleeps. Hi, everyone. John and Pete Najarian here at the NASDAQ with some news you do not want to miss. As option floor traders, CNBC contributors, and co-founders of OptionMonster.com, people always want to know our secrets for trading the options. So we wrote an entire book on it. And today, to celebrate the book launch, we're giving away a limited number of these books for free. All you have to do is cover shipping and handling. Learn how you can use options like we do to make more income with less capital. To reduce your investment risks. And to make money regardless of which way the market's moving. It's all right here in this book, and today we're giving it away to you for free. Equity options today are hailed as one of the most successful financial products to be introduced in modern times. You have to learn to profit from them. This one book could dramatically increase your investment returns. And today it's free. So pick up that phone and call now. Call 1-800-961-1923 for your free book. That's 1-800-961-1923. Call now. 
All right, welcome back to Money Never Sleeps, and uh, we're at the tail end, so it gets interesting. We, we're going to bring on Robert Sanchez. He is one of the co-founders of RAS Global Amenities, and we're going to bring him on so he can explain what it is. I think it's such an interesting concept. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, I'm excited to hear about uh, what you're doing, so uh, lay it on us. What's going on with RAS? You know, when we came up with the idea for the company, we were working with a lot of apartment buildings here in New York City and seeing that um, a lot of the residents, you know, had to go outside of the building to find the necessities for themselves, dry cleaning, food, pet walking, whatever it may be. And we thought to ourselves, it would be a, a great idea to bring that into the building to where they're living and really create an atmosphere of community within that building by bringing in all those services. So what RES Global does is they focus on going into buildings that are being constructed or are currently built and sitting down with the property managers or the developers or even the residents themselves, depending if it has a board or not, and go over the services that they're looking for. Um, some of the biggest things that we offer right now are things like pet walking. You know, in New York City, it's one of the, be- uh, the biggest things. People may not have a car, but they have a pet, and they're willing to spend the money on it. You know, it becomes part of a family. Along with that, we do the dry cleaning within the building, so it's on-site dry cleaning. Uh, people get it within the same day. So the whole concept is to bring a luxury service to any kind of apartment building or resident living. So what RES Global has started to focus on is particularly dry cleaning, pet services, um, their own brand of personal training, along with supplements even. So what we're doing is we're going in through about six current buildings right now within the city and offering these services to the residents that live there. Now, what we do to set us apart is we offer, you know, for example, with the dog walking, we are 100% insured. We're one of the only dog walking companies in the city that is 100% insured. All the dog walkers are actually CPR certified. So it gives the resident or the pet parent, as we like to call them, uh, assurance that their dog is going to be taken care of and or their cat. Um, along with the dry cleaning, what we do is we only work with with uh, dry cleaners that we know personally and or we can actually have access to their dry cleaning plant. You know, And everything we do is eco-friendly. That's one thing that we try and stress to the residents and our customers. Um, the way we lo- like to look at it as with the buildings is we're part of the building. We become part of the development team. We become part of the management team. Um, one big thing that we do focus on is when we're trying to give that service is that we, if there's a problem in the building, a resident has an issue with a refrigerator and or something broke, what we do is we'll offer our services for free and or our handymen or whatever it is through us in particular versus the building. That way, we're, we act almost as like a shield for management. You know, the superintendent can focus on doing what they need to do, whether it's, you know, slab leaks or whatever it is within within the building. We can handle more of the minor stuff that, you know, tends to choke up the management team. And let me so ask, that, that's kind of what we, we try to do with a lot of the buildings in the area. Right. Well, let you me know, ask it's you. It's a unique take that we try and do. Okay, Robert, let me ask you a question because there are companies out there that do some of the things that you do, but, you know, because I know RAS a little bit, okay, I know that you guys do, you, you do something different. And what I mean by different is that if someone brings their clothes to the dry cleaner and something goes wrong, Tell me what you guys do different than the other other companies that are actually doing this now. The way we do it is this: is I've had the issues past personally where I go to you know a dry cleaner or any kind of service and something goes wrong, and I have to sit there and argue for twenty minutes and plead my case. The difference is for us is if you come to us and you say you know we lost a garment or whatever it is, whether we lost it or not, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and cover you for it because to us it's more important to keep you happy and keep you as a customer than it is to sit there and argue you know the two inches of difference whether you're right or we're wrong whatever it is to us the most the biggest value is the customer and keeping them happy so that's that's definitely our main focus we'll always cover it i mean we've had people come in with you know two hundred dollar 
you know, button-up shirts that, you know, lost a button. Well, it, it's easy to replace a button, but that guy is no longer looking for a button replacement. We'll go ahead and cover the shirt. And you know what? He's going to come back later, and he's going to tell somebody else that, you know, we covered the shirt versus just sewing on back a button. So it, you know, beco- it becomes beyond business, you know, as you said. It's personal. Yeah, exactly. You make, you, you're creating a community atmosphere and it's, it's beyond concierge service. It's, it's just another level. And that's what I wanted to get to with this because you have a lot of companies that do this for buildings in New York. You know, and, and the big difference that I see is that you can have a concierge service. I mean, this is something that can actually work you know, it's like you're, you're bringing, and I had my, my previous guest, you know, uh, we were talking about hotels. You know, this is like bringing a hotel situation with the amenities and everything that someone wants to live a, uh, a better quality of life within their building. And, and that's, that's really what we strive for is, like you said it right on, is creating that better quality of life for, you know, the residents that we work with. And it's, to us, it's a personal business. You know, the concierge, the name itself works, but to us at the same time it doesn't work because to us it's more than just a concierge. We're not just there to help you. We're there to do what you need so that you can live a little bit easier after working for 12 hours and riding the subway for another hour and a half in the 90-degree weather. So. All right, beautiful. Now, Robert, I, I know that we, you know, we're going to bring you on another time where we have more time to really dive in deep into RAS. Uh, be, you know, and I think that any anyone that's listening, if you're a building owner and or you're a developer and you're looking to build, you know, you're, you're developing buildings in, in New York or in other states, you know, I would say, you know, reach out to RAS because if you're looking to add something extra in there, because people want that concierge service i mean they they want that some those amenities i mean you, you go to the hamptons you have people right now they live in a house but they have some concierge service that has to do with the area you know people want that uh that little something more to uh to increase their quality of life so i suggest you uh reach out to res uh robert why don't you give uh you the website information any social media information for res so that people know how to uh, get in touch with you and find out more about it sure the, the best way to get a hold of us is through our website which is uh, com. all our contact information is on there and you know a list of some of the buildings that we currently work with and, you know, the things that we provide. So check it out and let us know what you think. Excellent, Robert. Thank you. And, uh, again, I do urge, even if you're in a real estate business, just check out RAS uh, Global Amenities. You know, they're doing some great stuff. Okay. And on that note, uh, that's the end of Money Never Sleeps for this week. So uh, come, make sure that you join us next week as we have another set of great guests giving you great information. And uh, hopefully you'll have yourself a nice, profitable week. See you next Monday. You're listening to UCW Radio. In your face. What we got here is a failure to communicate. Oh, have I got your attention now? Relax. You know what I mean? Money to be made in a place like this. Money never sleeps, pal. You're crazy. Don't run away with me. Don't whine my face. You know what it takes to sell real estate? It takes brass, 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 brass. I'm falling, and I can't get up.